Acts 13 records a sermon that Paul preached in the town of Antioch in an area of Asia Minor called Pisidia. He's in the synagogue. He's preaching to Jews. And we're going to read from the middle portion on of his message. We're going to come back and make reference to the beginning. But I really want us to hear the, end, or the, the middle part of the sermon as Paul moves toward the conclusion. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 26 of Acts 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he, was, that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel, for the glory of our risen Lord. We praise you, Father, for the hope that is found in knowing that the tomb is empty. Father, this morning I pray that you would draw our attention towards you. I pray, Father, that our minds will be filled with thoughts of your glory and of the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ is not among the dead. He is living, resurrected just as he said. Father, by the power of your Spirit, the same Spirit that brought Jesus forth from the tomb, work in our hearts this morning. Glorify your name. For it is in the name of Jesus that we ask. 
And the church said, Amen. Now, this may seem a little bit odd, so bear with me. Because I want to begin this morning with a question that's a little bit, just a little bit of a riddle. And I'm going to use a, two pictures that will be found on the screen. So, Kelsey, if you will, go ahead and look at these. On the left is a picture of the common family game, Jenga. The premise of Jenga is very simple, if you've never played it. You get these small wooden blocks and you stack them up. And then players take turns removing one of the blocks. Until finally someone comes to that one block that is holding up the tower. And you can guess what happens when they remove that one block. Jenga! It falls. It collapses. Now, the picture on the right is a picture of a Roman aqueduct designed and built by the Romans well over 1,900 years ago. It's amazing that over almost 2,000 years ago, this is still standing and could still be functional. My dad was a civil engineer. He knew what it was to design bridges and things like that. And he used to tell me, even though I had no clue about it, that the most amazing geographical shape in engineering was the arch. That an arch could support an incredible amount of weight. The thing about the arch, though, is the, the stones are stacked together and they reach the apex of the curve. There is one stone that has to be placed in the middle of the top of the arch. It's called the keystone. It is the stone that when the supports are removed, the weight comes in on that stone and the very weight of the structure, the arch, rests upon that one stone. So guess what happens if that one stone is removed? Jenga. The arch collapses. It falls. So you have two things here. A child's game that you remove the, the one piece and it falls. A Roman arch, if you remove the one stone, it falls. Now, here's the riddle. What do those things have to do with Christianity? The answer is this. There is a key doctrine to Christianity. Now, there are many core doctrines of our faith. There's a lot of things that we can disagree on and say we just agree to disagree. But there are some doctrines that are crucial. For example, I would say the divinity of Jesus Christ is crucial. That's a non-negotiable to say that Jesus is God in the flesh. I would cling to the virgin birth as being a, a non-negotiable of the faith. The Messiahship of Jesus Christ, that He is God's Messiah, the Anointed One, come to deliver us. But even those doctrines are supported by one other doctrine. That if that doctrine is false, it collapses. The doctrine that supports everything else is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the keystone. It is the foundational doctrine that holds all things up and together. Now, lest you think that I am exaggerating, look at the screen at the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Corinthian church was questioning, do the dead really come back to life? I mean, it's not something you see every day. It truly is a miracle. So they're wondering, did the resurrection really occur? Do the dead walk? And Paul answers that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That word vain means futile, worthless. If Jesus has not been resurrected, your faith doesn't mean a thing. In fact, Paul goes on, we 
are even found to be mis misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, if God didn't resurrect Jesus, and we are saying God brought Jesus from the dead, we're lying about God. This is no small matter. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now look at the last sentence. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So even if we believe that Jesus Christ was divine, that he was the son of God, but he did not be, he was not resurrected, we're wrong. He wasn't divine. If we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, but he wasn't raised from the dead, what does it matter? That doctrine becomes meaningless if he wasn't resurrected. Even if we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, even if we say he is a model, an example, and he paid the price, if he did not come out of the tomb alive, resurrected from the dead, his death accomplished nothing. So the resurrection is absolutely crucial to our faith. And it is so important that when the early church had been born, and they are carrying the gospel out, the centerpiece of their message was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The book of Acts tells the story of the birth and the expansion of the church. There are ten sermons recorded in the book of Acts. Ten sermons. Ten foundational sermons. The first sermons preached in the church. And guess what the central topic is? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now Acts 13 contains one of those sermons. As I said earlier, Paul has gone to the synagogue in Antioch in an area of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, called Pisidia. And he goes into the synagogue, and I don't know if the people didn't know what had happened to Paul or if they didn't know he had converted to Christianity, but you can read earlier in chapter 13 that they read from the Law and the Prophets, they're going through normal worship, and the leaders send word, Paul or Saul, if you have any words of encouragement to the people, say it. Now, I don't know if they thought he was going to give a good Jewish homily there on the text they had read. I don't know what they were expecting, but I dare say they did not expect what Paul stood up and said. Because if they had not heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were about to. So Paul launches into a message. And his message that focuses on the resurrection comes out with one key application that is true for us today just as it was true for them. And that application is this. You can be right with God. No matter who you are or what you have done. No matter how bad you have been or how good you have tried to be. You can be right with God. No matter where you are and no matter how you got there. You can be right with God. And I want us to see this by starting at the end of the message, at the application part. Look at verses 38 and 39. Paul has just gone through explaining about God's compassion and explaining about the resurrection of Jesus. And now he says, let it be known therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now forgiveness means that moral guilt is removed. It means that your wrongs will not be held against you. To forgive a person means that we do not hold the past against them. But there's a bit of a nuance here. The word that is listed there as forgiveness in verse 38 
And in verse 39, the word freed are not the normal words for forgiveness. The word that is used there is a word that can also be translated justified. So it would be perfectly legitimate to read that through this man, justification of sins is proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from by following the law of Moses. Now justification is a churchy word, isn't it? Justification. It's something that almost becomes very dry to us. But it's a very important word. It's a word that means guilt removed. It's a legal term that means your record is expunged. It's a relational term that means because your guilt is removed and your record is clean, you can be reconciled to God. You see, justification is not a dry, dusty doctrine. It is life-giving. It is truth that gives us life. Miroslav Volf is a theologian. He used to teach at Yale. He's Czechoslovakian. Brings often a unique understanding to the gospel and to theology. And he was visiting a friend of his that works in a dangerous part of Baltimore. His friend works in Sandtown. Now Sandtown is the part of Baltimore that every, every city has an area like it. It's the area of the city that is poor, poverty stricken. It's the area of the city where crime seems to continually increase. Where it's dangerous. Where quote unquote good folks don't want to be caught in. His friend is there trying to minister. And as they're walking through this inner city and they're looking at all the problems, his friend says, but you know, there's one resource that if I could just get in here, it would transform everything. Mirosov Bal was curious, so he said, what is that? His friend looked at him and said, the doctrine of justification by faith. Now that wasn't what Mirosov Bal was thinking. I mean, after all, how many social programs do we here start off with? Number one, to change the inner city, bring in the doctrine of justification by faith. It's usually not in the top ten. Now this puzzled Mirosov Bob, and he, instead of asking his friend, he said he went and he, he thought about it, and it came to him this. He said, imagine for a moment that you have no job. You have no money. You live cut off from the rest of society in a world ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the quote-unquote wrong color. And you have no hope, no hope at all that anything will change. And around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. The goods of that society are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens. And in a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure. And you know that you will continue to be a failure because there's no way to achieve tomorrow what you failed to achieve yesterday. Your dignity is shattered. You're enveloped in a darkness of despair because you can't measure up. But then the gospel comes in. The gospel tells you you are not defined by outside sources. The gospel tells you you count. The gospel tells you that you are loved unconditionally and infinitively irrespective of anything, of anything you have achieved or not achieved. The gospel tells you you are loved not because of anything you have done or not done, but because of the gracious love of Jesus Christ. And he said, realize how a community, how a state, how a nation could be changed if it was realized 
that you don't have to achieve, but by God's grace, you are loved. You see, the doctrine of justification by grace is hardly dead. It is alive and powerful and needed today. And it is our only hope to be made right with God. Look at what he says in verse 39. By him, now that is by Jesus... Everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything. Now look at the next phrase. From which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So in other words, if you were trying to attain rightness with God by following an external moral code. You're not going to attain it. We would put it in words like this today. Jesus Christ will free you from everything you cannot attain by being good. On your own. Now, when he uses the law here, he is reminding us the law in and of itself is not bad, but it can't give life. Trusting in goodness or the law for our salvation is like what happened in Vancouver, British Columbia in 1909. That city had saved up and had fundraising drives to buy their first motorized ambulance. And in 1909, they met their goal of $4,000. That was a huge amount in 1909. Be the equivalent of $100,000 today. And they bought a model 740 ambulance from New York. And they were thrilled. It was a big day in Vancouver. There was a parade to mark the coming of the ambulance into town. And they were wondering, when would the ambulance be put into use? They didn't have to wait long. Because that very day, the ambulance had its first trip. It had its first patient because the ambulance ran over someone as it was parading through town. The ambulance hit somebody. And that person tragically died. You see, that which was supposed to give life and deliverance didn't. You see, the law is good. An ambulance is a good thing. But the law itself can't give life. It simply points out sin. Now, this is how the the law works. Because it tells us what is right and what is wrong. So do it like this. I want you to, for a moment, do not think about what you're going to eat for Easter lunch today. Don't think about that ham. Deviled eggs, no. Don't think about it. Don't. Now, where does your mind go? You begin to think about that. The minute I say don't. No, seriously, stop thinking about it. That's the way the law works. Thou shalt not covet. Don't covet, don't covet. And I start thinking of coveting. Don't murder. And then I start thinking of of those that, oh. You see, the law reveals sin. It cannot deliver. So what we need is someone that can deliver us where an external code of goodness can't. Being moral can't. Trying to be moral only adds to your dilemma because now you have to deal with how good do you have to be. Do you measure up? So we need someone that can be good on our behalf. We need someone that can take the penalty of our sin on our behalf. And Paul is clear. Through the man Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. By Jesus, everyone can be justified of their sin. And he says the reason he can make that statement is because of the resurrection. Now, look back at the beginning of the sermon. I didn't read the first part of it. This sermon begins with the compassion of God. The foundation that Paul uses to get to justification by grace alone in Jesus Christ 
is God's compassion. Verse 17, he says, he chose our fathers. That's grace. He increased them even when they were enslaved. That's grace. He delivered them out of Egypt. That is grace. He carried them in the wilderness. Verse 18, that is grace. Verse 19, he defeated their enemies and he restored them to Canaan. That is grace. He gave them leaders and removed leaders. Verses 20 through 22, that is grace. But notice at the end of verse 23, as he has spoken of King David, he says of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior as he promised. You see, even with all of the compassion and the grace that God gave to Israel, they still rebelled against Him. You see, Israel's story is our story. Even with all the grace God has given us in so many ways, we still rebel against Him. And even if today as you are hearing this message, and you may not be a follower of Jesus Christ... Understand that God has still given you grace to live, breath to breathe, food to eat. All of those are by the grace of God. And like Israel, we receive that grace, but we still do our own thing. We live our own way. We follow our own path. And that is why he says, we need a Savior. You see, we need a Savior because the compassion of God does not negate the justice of God. God's attributes never work contrary to one another. So it's not like God can be compassionate and ignore his justice. Nor can he be just and ignore his compassion. But we focus so much on the compassion of God, we forget his justice. And we begin to think our sins are really no big deal to God because he overlooks them. And we become like this man in Minnesota who was pulled over by the police, and as he was reaching into his pockets to get out his wallet, he put his hand on a card that was in his pocket that he had put there from a game he and his kids had played the night before. Monopoly. And as the police officer came up to the car, an old man rolled down his window, he looked at the officer and pulled out his get-out-of-jail-free card <laughs> and handed it to the officer. Guess what happened? The officer laughed and then wrote out the ticket. That's how we do with God. Lord, you're compassionate. This is my get out of jail free card. But God is still just. But here's the good news. Because God is just, he must judge our rebellion. He must judge the fact we go our own way. But because he is compassionate, he provides the means to pay for that. So that he is just and the justifier. He is compassionate and at the same time, he is holy. And that's what he has done in Jesus. Notice what he says in verses 27 and 28. He says, the rulers, the rulers should have recognized him because they had heard the prophets. And notice, by the way, in verse 27, which are read every Sabbath. Look back to verse 15. After reading the law and the prophets. So Paul's putting in a very subtle reminder. Synagogue, you should recognize this. They crucified Jesus. Notice it says in verse 29, they took him down from the tree. He doesn't use the word for cross. He uses the word for tree because in Deuteronomy it says everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And it's a reminder that when Jesus died, he bore the curse of God on our behalf because of our sins. Then verse 30 comes along. I love the conjunction at the beginning of verse 30. To me, it's one of the most powerful three-letter words in all the Bible. But God... 
Jesus died, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus was laid in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And Paul emphasizes this to show that Jesus is the Savior. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, by raising Jesus. Verse 34, he raised him from the dead. Verse 37, whom God raised up. He continually comes back to say, the way I know that Jesus is the Savior is because God raised him from the dead then Paul goes a step further he says as God resurrected Jesus he fulfilled three promises he made in the Old Testament the first promise is listed in verse 33 he says this he fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm and he quotes Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 you are my son today I have begotten you now, Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. That means it was a psalm that was sung when the king was ascending to the throne. And he is saying that Jesus Christ is the king who becomes the divine representative, representative of God. Now, when he says in verse 33, today I have begotten you, it is not that Jesus was not divine before. Jesus has always been God. The focus here is on the ascension to the throne. Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus demonstrated without question that Jesus is the Son of God. Paul echoed this in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, you'll see it up on the screen in verses 3 and 4. Paul writes these words. If we could go to the next slide. He says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And was declared. Now that declared means shouted out. Not made. But it was shouted out. It was, he was declared to be the son of God. In power. According to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection of the dead declares beyond a shadow of a doubt. That Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now think of it in terms like this. I love hearing professional athletes tell stories from the days they played. They're humorous, they're, they're, they're amazing because of the athletic feats they perform. And I love hearing stories of Michael Jordan. Still think he's the greatest basketball player ever. Did things that were amazing. And one of the stories that often makes the rounds about Michael Jordan is an event that occurred in 1987. I believe that was his third or fourth year in the NBA. The Chicago Bulls are playing the Utah Jazz in Utah. And Jordan goes down the court and he does one of his famous dunks over the point guard for the Jazz, John Stockton. Now, John Stockton stands six feet tall. He's three inches shorter than I am. Jordan dunked over him. Jordan is six feet, six inches tall. Jordan's running back down the court, and a fan yells at him, Pick on somebody your own size. The very next trip down the court, Jordan gets the ball, and he dunks over Mel Turpin. Mel Turpin is 6 feet and 11 inches tall. And as Jordan is running back down the court, he looks at that fan and goes, Big enough? <laughs> now the reason I share that is this. Jesus Christ brought sight to the blind. Was that enough? Jesus Christ brought strength to the legs of the lame so they could walk. Was that enough? Jesus Christ quieted the storm at the water. Was that enough? Jesus Christ literally raised the dead himself. Was that enough? And as if to say, 
is there anything else I can do to prove to you that I am the Son of God? God brought Jesus from the dead himself, resurrected to say, here is my proof as to who I am. In power, I am definitively and without question the very Son of God, fulfilling Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I am the King. The second Psalm he quotes is in verse 34. He says, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. He says, the resurrection fulfilled this. Now, the holy and sure blessing of David refers to the promise God made to David that somebody from David's line would always sit on the throne. Now, this is important because David became the kind of the prototype of what a king ought to be. This doesn't mean David was perfect. David was far from perfect. But he was still a man after God's own heart. David wasn't always right, but he strived to be righteous. He wasn't always good, but he worked to be just. David became the ideal of what a king should be. Strong and sympathetic, powerful yet kind. Regal yet humble. Yet David fell short of God's glory and David died. So God said, David, there will be one from your line who will not fall short. He will rule forever. He will be merciful and just, strong and compassionate. And on his very shoulders, the government will rest. Today, as Christians in America, we need to be reminded of this. Today, when skeptical views of the government are at an all-time high and confidence in the government is at an all-time low, When we have to send our children out of the room when political news comes on, lest they hear something that is salacious, we need to be reminded that the administration we want and long for is found in the Alpha and the Omega. We need to be reminded that we serve a kingdom that will not end. We need to be reminded that we serve one who is in control and his agenda will not be stopped. Paul is saying, that's Jesus. And you know how we know that? He says the resurrection. And then he moves to the third psalm. Here's the problem. God gave these promises to David. But he says in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 36. But David died. He saw corruption. His body decayed. So we need a king if he is going to to be the king and he's going to be the king forever and he's going to be the one who is the king that we long for. He needs to be one who can live forever. And so he says, guess what? God raised up Jesus and Jesus did not see corruption. He is the king who reigns eternal. The king who will never die. And the resurrection is proof of all of these. And Paul ends by saying, this calls you to make a decision. He says, based upon the compassion of God that is manifest ultimately in Jesus' death and resurrection, you can have forgiveness of sins. But then he concludes his message by quoting from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Verses 40 and 41 in Acts 13. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. He says the resurrection is shocking. Scoffers doubt it. Skeptics question it. But God said, I'm going to do something in your days you'll not believe. And he's saying the resurrection is it. Now this morning you may fall into that category. You're skeptical. Uncertain. And I want to ask you to consider one thing 
if the Roman government wanted to put an end to the spread of Christianity, there was one thing they had to do that would have stopped it. And that is to produce the body of Jesus Christ. If the apostles are going out and they're preaching Jesus Christ is resurrected, you stop that message real quick by saying, here's the body. He's dead. Now they knew where the tomb was. Remember, Pilate had it sealed and guards posted there. They knew exactly. But there is no historical record anywhere of any government official trying to exhume the body of Jesus and stop the message of the gospel. You know why? Because the body wasn't there. He's alive. And Paul says, because he is alive, you and I can be right with God. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.